You're listening to the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. I'm your host, Arden Cartret. This space is meant to be a tool for you to feel less alone and to learn more about how to get through what you've been through and what you're probably going through. We'll hear diverse stories from women and men in the online space, experts, and people just like you and me who are feeling the effects of miscarriage and loss in real time. This is the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. Thanks for joining me today and for being so willing to share your story. Um, The audience is going to learn through your story, but you're currently going through loss. So it's such a raw and it's such a hard time to talk about it. Not that there's an easy time, um, but I'm really grateful for your voice and for willingness to share. And so if you would just like to get started and a lot of people like to start where, um, they meet their partner. Some people start with their first pregnancy. So I will let you decide where your story starts. No problem. So, um, so yeah, I guess I'll start with, um, my husband and I are actually a pandemic couple, I guess you could say, um, we met back in 2016, um, and for quite a while, but we aimed to get married in April of 2020. And of course we all know kind of what happened around that time frame. Um, my husband and I were kind of like the last of our big friend group to get married. So, um, we kind of like saw all our friends get married the year or two before, and we were like getting really excited for our time to finally kind of have our wedding and be kind of the center of attention. So of course, um, I'm in like the last stages of wedding planning in March when COVID kind of hit and we had to just like scramble and I, I honestly, I couldn't believe that we actually had to cancel our wedding, but, um, so our venue kind of everything shut down a few weeks before our wedding date, which was April 18th, 2020. Um, so that was kind of crazy experience just kind of at the start of our marriage. Um, we did actually end up still getting married on our original date in our backyard. Um, we have a flock of chickens and everything that I adore. So they got to be there, um, our like close um, just our parents and like my siblings were there. So we were still able to make it special. And, um, at the end of the day, I guess I wouldn't change it, but that was a crazy way to kind of start our marriage. Maybe it was a foreshadowing. Um, so we did postpone like our big celebration to October. So we always kind of talked about that. We would probably start trying, um, to start a family in the kind of fall of 2020 anyway. So, we rescheduled to October 25th and we had kind of our bigger celebration. It was still scaled down to about like 50 guests, but it was, it was still, um, an amazing day. And then I got my IUD out, which I had had in for nearly five years, four days later. So I was, I was ready. I, my friends at that point, um, most of them were either pregnant or they had already had their first child. So kind of same thing. We're like, all right, it's our turn next. Um, and I was, I was excited. I felt like it was right. And I felt like it was time. So I got my IUD out and we went on our honeymoon to St. Lucia. And I kind of still got like light periods while I was on my IUD. So I kind of had an idea of what my cycle was doing. And I was according to like the apps and stuff, I was supposed to ovulate over our honeymoon. So I was like, oh, how great would that be? We would have like the, maybe the greatest souvenir, but we kind of were like not 
seriously trying, but at the same time, um, we thought it would be neat if that would happen, which I don't, I think everyone like hopes that that might happen when they start trying. Um, but I know that for many people, it takes several months before you actually get a positive test. So I wasn't expecting it to happen right away. Um, but so we went on our honeymoon and when I came home, it was very close to Thanksgiving and I kind of got what I thought was a period after we got back, but it only lasted about a day, which is unusual for me. They usually last about three to four days. So I didn't really like think much of it. And I honestly, I don't know what prompted me to like take a pregnancy test, um, a few days later, but for whatever reason I did. And it was a few days before Thanksgiving and I kind of like left it on the windowsill because I really didn't, I was like, I'm going to take this, but I don't, I don't have any reason to think that I am pregnant because I thought I got my period. Um, and I came back and I was absolutely shocked to see that those two lines had shown up and they were, I mean, they were there. And of course I was pretty naive at this point. Like I was like, are there ever, ever like false positives? Like, can I really trust this? And of course now I'm, I would consider myself an expert at pregnancy tests and analyzing lines and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny to look back at it. Um, but that night I, um, put like these tags on our dogs that said like big brother and big sister. And that's kind of how I surprised my husband. And we were just thrilled that it, we couldn't believe it happened that fast. Um, and we were just excited. And then, I mean, the next few days, we didn't really say anything to everyone because we wanted to announce at Thanksgiving, which was like, I mean, it was like four days later. I mean, I was like five weeks pregnant, but I didn't really think about that stuff. Um, I didn't tell the whole world, but I didn't feel like it was something we wanted to keep a secret either. And I mean, in retrospect, I am glad that we told everyone because I think having them know about it and having people support in retrospect of what happened um, was really important. I'm glad that we did it. Um, so we told everyone Thanksgiving, like everyone cried and we were just, we were ready. And my due date was like at, um, the end of the summer in July. So, I mean, I feel like as soon as you see those two pink lines, um, I feel like as many of us have said before, that's kind of when you become a mom. And I immediately like just started like planning my life around like what miles to pregnancy milestones I would be hitting. Like, um, I started looking at baby stuff and everything. I was just ready. So I didn't even think about miscarriage because my friends had all had relatively uncomplicated pregnancies. Like no one that I personally knew, which is false now because I well, since I've opened up about my journey, I've had a lot of people open up to me about their own losses, which has been really powerful. But until then I was naive to that entire world and didn't realize how many people do go through it. So it was never like, it was never something I thought about or scared of. Um, so I did, I mean, unfortunately I did start having spotting around like six weeks and that freaked me out. So I did get into my OB. They were like, okay, well, spotting and bleeding can happen a lot in early pregnancy. So why don't we get you in for a scan and an ACG? And I was like, all right, that sounds good. So basically I didn't know my ACG at the time, but, um, 
they basically got me in for a scan. And by this point, based on my rough calculations, it was a little weird with the IUD, but I should have been around like six weeks and I think like six days. Um, so again, I didn't know a ton about pregnancy and ultrasounds at this point. So I kind of went into it a little blind and not knowing what to expect. Um, so they did a transvaginal ultrasound and I could see that there were two gestational sacs actually, which kind of blew my mind. There was like kind of a, um, kind of a normal size one and then like a very tiny one. And the ultrasound I've heard the whole time was just very quiet. Um, so she kind of just said, how long, how far along are you supposed to be? And I said, almost seven weeks. And she just kind of dismissed me immediately. She's just like, there's no way that you're that far along. She said, you're probably more about five weeks. You must just have your dates wrong, but it looks like there's two gestational sacs here and you should just come back next week. And by then we should be able to tell you more. So, um, so I kind of left that appointment almost feeling, I guess, hopeful that, that she didn't give me any bad news. That's the way I guess I saw it is that, Hey, um, we'll just come back and hopefully by then things will look fine. I must've just had stuff wrong. And and now I'm retrospects from what I know, obviously, as soon as she said, you must be earlier um, than you think. I feel like that is just such a red flag um, that I think they're supposed to say that. And I feel like a lot of times they don't want to give you the bad news, but I mean, honestly, I would rather them just be honest with me rather than giving me false hope. So, so I kind of like that night, I felt like things looked fine. I was still having some spotting and some bleeding, but I just assumed that everything was going to work out since they didn't see anything wrong. Um, and then sadly that night, all of a sudden I started having really bad cramping and all of a sudden I just started bleeding a lot, like more than I had ever seen in my entire life. Um, and I mean, basically at that point, I knew that I was miscarrying. Um, I think even if you've never experienced it, when it does finally happen, I mean, you can't mistaken it for anything else. And you just know that you're losing your baby. So, um, I had a lot of bleeding, a lot of cramping and just passing these big clots. I had never seen anything like that before. Um, I mean, I guess, fortunately it all stopped within a few hours and, I didn't have like any bad complications with it or anything, but I just, I just knew that it was over. Um, and it all just happened so fast. I just couldn't believe the amount of like emotions I went through within that day of kind of the worrying about the spotting and then being excited that we were maybe going to have twins since there were two gestational sacs and then miscarrying that night was just a lot all in one day. Um, so my OB did confirm the next day that my ACG had dropped and that I had had a miscarriage and I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, because like I said, I really didn't know anyone that had had one and I just didn't think it could happen to me. Um, and I mean, I do, even though at this point I still feel sad when I think about that first loss, um, I can still go back and put myself in my, like in that place of just that emptiness and just that brokenness and just wondering like why my body couldn't do this. Um, and I think many of us feel that way, especially with the first one. 
Um, and even subsequent ones, I think you always wonder if there's something that you could have done differently. Um, when the truth is it's, it's something that is usually just completely out of our control. Um, so I did go back for a scan a week later, just to make sure everything looked good with my, um, like my uterus. And I was hoping that they would be like, okay, everything looks beautiful. You can try again when your cycle comes back. Um, I actually did have retained tissue from the miscarriage. So I, um, and at the time that felt like the worst thing ever because it just drew it out. I had to actually get surgery done to remove the retained tissue, even though my HCG was zero by that point. I guess sometimes some of that pregnancy tissue can stick around and they just said for future pregnancies, it would be better for it to um, be taken care of. So I did have a hysteroscopy and DNC a few weeks after my initial miscarriage. So, um, and this was of course all around the holidays too. This was in, this was in December. So it was just um, kind of a lonely time to have, not that there's ever a good time to have a miscarriage, but it was especially a lonely time to have one when it's supposed to be um, just a lot of family time and um, happy times and stuff like that. I had to, um, I love her, but I had to watch my um, six month old niece open Christmas presents um, with our family. And that kind of stuff just was so hard to have to go through knowing that just a few weeks ago I had been pregnant and I thought that I was going to be bringing my own baby home um, the next summer. So um, so fortunately my surgery went well and they pretty much just told me, look, miscarriages happen and the likelihood of you having another one is super low. The odds are in your favor, basically. And I think a lot of us hear that, especially if we've had recurrent loss and most of us think it's probably not going to happen again. Like I was devastated the first one happened, but I felt hopeful going forward. Um, so I, I hate that time too. I think a lot of us feel that like kind of limbo time in between a loss until like your cycle returns until you feel like you can like start trying again, because, um, I've heard other women say this on your podcast before, but I felt like even during as horrible as it is, even when I was knew I was miscarrying, all I could think about was when I could try again and when I could get pregnant again, and when I could just kind of get back on track. Um, so that's like kind of what I obsessed with in this kind of limbo period was I just wanted to try again. I just want to be pregnant again. Um, I also did a few, like I went to a few doctor's offices to try to see if there's anything that I could do to prevent this from happening again in the future. Um, I was actually diagnosed during that time with hypothyroidism, which does can really affect, um, your cycle and can, and can cause recurrent miscarriage. So, I always tell people um, if they have any issues with infertility or with miscarriage to get your thyroid checked because um, apparently the level that is supposed to be ideal for conception is like below your TSH supposed to be below 2.5. And mine was hovering around four for years and I was never treated for it. But after my history with this, I actually did get started on thyroid medicine. So, um, I always want to put in a PSA for women to go get their thyroid checked because we so commonly have issues with it. So, um, I got started on medication for that. And then my dad had actually a blood clot a few years prior to this. And I found out that I had a blood clotting disorder at that time, never needed medication for it. But again, in my research, I was like, oh, this is something that can cause miscarriage. So I saw a hematologist and 
I will be on Lovenox, which is an injectable blood thinner whenever I am pregnant in the future. Um, so I, I felt good about these things. I was like, I'm doing something proactive to try to make next time different. So, um, so that's kind of what I worked on in that time. It, like I said, it was almost like an obsession for me to just make sure that this didn't happen again and to get pregnant again. Um, so January, like I said, I had my surgery, I think end of December. And then in late January, um, I actually found out that I was pregnant again. So, um, which was just crazy to me because again, it's like, we kind of, we tried again and it happened again. So I, I was absolutely thrilled. I was like, this is what exactly what I wanted. I've changed things. I'm positive. This time is going to be different. Um, what I didn't expect was the, just after the first few initial days of excitement, just like the crippling anxiety that went along with it, which I know a lot of us with pregnancy after loss experience. Um, so I, my doctor told me they would bring me in for betas next time I got pregnant to kind of like ease my mind and track the pregnancy. So my betas with my first miscarriage, um, were like, when I went in at like almost seven weeks was like 2000, which I know now was like super low and that should have been a red flag at that point. So, um, so I didn't have great betas with my first one. So when I went in for this pregnancy, I went in around probably like four weeks. I went new super early. I was tracking the line progression and everything like that. And my betas actually this time looked great. They were doubling appropriately. Um, I think at one point they almost tripled. So I was absolutely thrilled. I was like, okay, this time is going to be different. My betas are awesome. Um, this has to mean that this is a healthy pregnancy. So I also kind of told myself if I could get past the part at which I had started bleeding with the first miscarriage, I would feel better. So for me, that was around, I think like six weeks and two days. If I could just get past that, then, um, I would feel a lot better and less anxious about things. And I don't know if that would have been true. Um, I guess we'll, I guess I'll have to find out maybe someday in the future. Um, but so basically, um, we did do an early scan that my OB said we could get for peace of mind. And I got a scan like five weeks and four days, which I don't know if I would do again, because I don't think it was reassuring. And so many women can have, I think a scan at that time and not know how it's going to go either way. So I don't know if I would do that again in the future, but I looking back on this, when I went in, it was just a gestational sac again. So I almost was right back at my first miscarriage. Nothing bad had happened yet, but I just had this like bad feeling. As soon as I saw that scan, something about it just didn't look right. Um, so again, they kind of told me, look, there's no reason to worry at this point. It's still super early. Come back in two weeks. So again, kind of this like limbo period where you just, you don't know what's going on and just have to trust that your body is going to continue to do what it does best, um, what it's supposed to do. So I kind of went on and I made it to that six week, two day mark. And I hadn't had any bleeding. So I was like, all right. Um, I kind of made it to that time frame. And then unfortunately that night I 
had, I started bleeding and I just could not believe it. It was, it was devastating. Um, what was weird about this compared to the first miscarriage is it, what, it wasn't like pink spotting or anything. It felt almost like period, like bleeding, which I thought was really unusual. Um, they had me come in to do another ultrasound and they actually did see growth. There was the gestational sac grew and there was a yolk sac, but no heartbeat yet. So I was kind of, I felt a little positive about that, but until there's that heartbeat, I know that they can't tell you anything about the pregnancy being viable. So I just kind of was stuck in this limbo. Um, so sorry, there's so many details here. I'm just trying to make sure I don't leave out anything major, um, while still trying to summarize this without sidetracking too much. You're doing, you're doing great. And you know, if you need to take a second to collect your thoughts, that's okay too. Um, I'll edit this out, but I mean, I can edit out spaces and breaths and things like that. Sure. So you're totally and, fine. And if you have any questions for me, feel free to interrupt me. I appreciate like the conversational, um, aspect of it at some point too, but, um, I'll keep going. I've never told this its entirety. So this is a, this is new for me. There's just so much. Yeah. A um, lot of people, they don't think that they can, you know, share their story and just like put it all out there. But once you get going, it kind of, it just, I don't know. It just like all comes together into a story. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, um, so I, so I had that scam where there was like some progress. Um, but the only thing I will say is that the, I think there was, um, I think there might've been a maternal fetal medicine specialist that actually looked at the scan too. And they just, they're like, okay, there's progress, but something just looks weird with your gestational sac. And I almost felt like embarrassed about it because, and they were right. Um, I'm a veterinarian. So I do look at ultrasounds sometimes and I not pregnancy ultrasounds like this, but I kind of have an idea what things look like. And something just did not look right with the gestational sac. It kind of looked scalloped or misshapen and they couldn't really tell me what they thought of it or what it meant, but obviously that did not sit right with me at all. Um, and so I just kind of went on holding out for that, um, scan that my OB wanted to do at, um, like around seven and a half weeks to hopefully see that heartbeat and hopefully see, um, that, um, little embryo or, um, fetus in there. So this whole time I was just having like period, like bleeding though. And that really, obviously every time I went to the bathroom, I was just like, is this going to be the time I miscarry again? Because at this point I pretty much assumed that it was probably going to go South. I had to keep that little bit of hope that I think we all have to keep, but part of me was also just wondering when is this going to be taken away from me again, just like it was last time. Um, so, but I'm, I also knew since I had had that first miscarriage that until I had that very heavy bleeding, I knew like I wasn't out like as, as dark as that sounds, but I kind of like knew what to expect, which I was almost glad about. So I would knew, knew when it would be over or not. Um, so I did make it to that seven week, um, scan and so I was just hoping we would see that heartbeat and things would have progressed. But, um, actually what we ended up seeing is that everything had actually kind of faded away. And all there was, was this even larger, just empty gestational sac. And that whole time, I think I had been like holding everything in. I kind of had been numb up into that point, just hoping that things would turn around. And I was in that same just ultrasound room being told again that, um, 
there was there was no baby there and um, at this point, at least I knew that it was over instead of having that false hope. So um, I just remember, fortunately, my husband was able to be there with me. Um, my OB at that time, this was in February. Um, I don't know why we were lucky enough to actually have our spouses accompany us because I know a lot of women have had to go through this by themselves during the pandemic, which I just think is terrible. Um, so I was able to just break down with him once the sonographer left and I kind of, I didn't have to go through the options with my first miscarriage since I miscarried naturally, but I did know kind of the three options that you have with a miscarriage with a miss miscarriage is what they were calling it at this point. Um, so I knew I could do the medication, which I've just heard horror stories about. And I know you have one of your own Arden. So, um, I opted not to do that. And I knew I didn't want to just keep waiting because nothing had happened by this point. So I didn't want to draw it out. So I did request pretty much a DNC as soon as I could possibly get it, because I just didn't think that I could just go on, um, waiting for something to happen. I wanted to start the healing process as soon as possible. Um, so with COVID they had, I had to get tests and everything. So I actually did, this was a Thursday and they couldn't get me until Tuesday. So I actually did have to kind of wait over the weekends just to, um, know that the, my baby was dead inside of me. And I, just had to wait until I could get the surgery done. So I, my healing process was delayed. So that was really difficult to have to do that. Um, they did draw my ECG that day to kind of see what it was doing. And of course, with a miscarriage, I expected it to be going down. Um, so I didn't get the results of those, the, my um, ECG actually until Monday. And I get like the lab results, um, to my online account. So I'm able to actually see them, um, without having to call my doctor's office, which has been a blessing through this entire experience since I've had so many blood tests done at this point. Um, so I was expecting it to go way down. Um, I think the last one I had had was at like 16,000 at the end of five weeks. I didn't know what it was now, but, um, what I did not expect was my actual result which was that my HCG was almost 200,000. Um, so that blew my mind because I assumed that it would be like abysmal. So of course, as soon as I saw that number, I was like, that's a crazy high number. Um, my doctor hadn't reached out to me yet. And of course I went straight to Dr. Google with that one, because I just couldn't believe how high it was. Um, and I will say one of the first things that I, um, found was things about a molar pregnancy. So molar pregnancies tend to have very high HCG levels. And that's one of the first ways that an, an OB or a doctor might become suspicious of it. Um, so to me, the pieces kind of started coming together because the HCG was so high. And then I started to think about my ultrasounds being really ugly so um, I feel like I should explain what the molar pregnancy is because a lot of people have never heard of it before. Um, I remember reading about them, like I had read a bunch of pregnancy books, um, like prior to us starting trying because I wanted to like educate myself and be ready for what was to come. Um, so I remember like seeing it maybe 
mentioned very briefly and basically that it's super rare and that it doesn't happen very often and that it can like turn into a cancer. That's pretty much the only thing I knew about it. So of course, when you read something and it says it's super rare, you kind of dismiss it. I really didn't know anything much about that otherwise. So basically what a molar pregnancy actually is, is it happens at the time of conception. So it is kind of a, kind of a genetic freak accident. Um, there's two types of molar pregnancies. One, there's a complete molar pregnancy and a partial molar pregnancy. So I ended up being diagnosed later with a complete molar pregnancy, which basically what that means is that at the time of conception, um, for me personally, I, I still like, sometimes I like feel guilty about this and almost beat myself up for the, even though it's out of my control, but, um, I basically ovulated an egg that was empty of genetic material. So it didn't have anything in it. So it could never create a baby essentially. Um, and so when the sperm fertilizes that empty egg, Basically, sometimes two sperm will actually fertilize one egg. That's part of what a molar pregnancy can be too. Um, mine was actually only one in my genetic report, but a lot of times it's two sperm that fertilize the one egg. And so what happens is the, since there's no maternal DNA, the sperm just keep making, they duplicate and they make their own. And what happens is as the pregnancy progresses, no baby actually forms because there was no um, mom DNA. So it just forms this like really ugly kind of, um, tumor like placenta basically is what happens. And, um, so it is kind of like this tumor that forms instead of a baby. So that's what a molar pregnancy kind of is. Um, a partial molar pregnancy is when there is a normal egg, but it's fertilized by two sperms. So you get a, a baby form and some people will even hear a heartbeat with a partial molar pregnancy, um, but it's a triploid. So the baby will never be able to grow to term. And eventually they usually pass away at some point during the first trimester. Um, so is, is that enough explanation for you? Can I, um, elaborate on that yeah. at all for you? No, I think that that was a really great way of, of putting it. And, um, I think with molar pregnancies and, that, and I'm sure that you experience this too. A lot of women tell me they feel almost like they can't, they can't put their grief like they can't figure out their grief because the definition kind of like dehumanizes it. I think that's the wrong word I'm trying to say, but um, I get what you're saying. I think a lot of people struggle with it because especially with a complete molar pregnancy, which is what I had um, since the egg was empty, it means that there really was never a baby. So right. a lot of people I think struggle with that because you feel like can I even be sad about this? There was never a baby to begin with. Um, so, um, partial molar pregnancies are a little different because there was at least like a baby there and sometimes even a heartbeat at some point. Um, but yes, I think a lot of women struggle with that. And I did at first too. Um, we actually did get a genetic report back from, um, my DNC that I'll talk about, but we did end up getting, um, results back that there were, um, two X chromosomes. Um, so even though technically there was never a baby for me, I still consider it 
a loss of a baby because to kind of explain it, like if, if my, if my egg had had, um, genetic material in it, it would have been an X chromosome. So since um, the sperm that was in the sample were X chromosomes. Like we would have, we sh would have had a girl if I had had a normal egg. So, I mean, to me, whatever sperm was produced that time when we conceived this smaller pregnancy, I mean, if, if there had been a normal egg, um, I mean, we might never see the genetic material of that sperm ever again. So, I mean, to me, it was still, it's probably still, um, that genetic makeup will probably never see it again. So I still do kind of mourn um, what I consider would have been a daughter if things had gone right. So that's the way I try to see it. But some people, I don't know if it makes them feel better to not think of it being a baby. So it, it's very complicated for sure. It is, it is. And, and, you know, just to clarify, like in the realm of this podcast and, and the work that I do, I very much recognize that as a loss, but I also, um, I validate if somebody maybe doesn't view it as a loss, if, you know, if they view that as themselves yes. and they, they find comfort in the definition of a complete molar pregnancy, I understand that too. So, um, I think that grief is complicated and it's our own and how we cope with it, you know, is very unique to us. So I appreciate you educating on the difference between a complete and a partial, um, because I actually don't think now that I'm thinking about it out of all the conversations I've had, I don't think we've talked about complete molar pregnancies. I know we've talked about partial, um, mm -hmm. and it's just, it, it, it is so it is unique and it's, oh, it's just, it's very rare. It yeah, it's apparently, yes, it's apparently one out of a thousand pregnancies will be a molar pregnancy. I don't know if that's complete versus partial. And I don't mm. know if one is more common than the other. Um, so like one in a thousand is like what, um, it's like, it's like 0.1%. So, I mean, it sounds super rare, but I guess at the same time, one out of a thousand women, like in the whole country, I mean, that's affected. Yeah. So well, and, while it and I is think rare, it happens. Right. And in this, you know, in the miscarriage community, I view statistics very differently. Like, even if you tell me I have a 0.01% chance of, of something happening to me, you know, I've been a part of those statistics before. So I don't really view it as totally rare. It's just yeah. <laughs> not likely to happen to your average person. So yes, um, trust me. You know, it is important to know these things. Yes. Trust me. I mean, statistics mean absolutely nothing to me anymore <laughs> yeah. because, um, I mean, I had a molar pregnancy and then, um, we'll go on to talk about, um, that I ended up needing also chemotherapy for my molar pregnancy, which only happens in about like 20% of complete cases and 1% of partials. Um, so, I mean, you take those two and all of a sudden it's like a one out of like 10,000 chance that I would have experienced this. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, statistics mean nothing to me anymore. And the truth is after having a molar pregnancy, I have like, instead of a 0.1% chance, I have a 1% chance of it happening again, which is like terrifying to me because terrifying. I mean, when you have something like that happen, that's supposed to be so rare. And then there's a 1% chance. It's like, well, that's, that's a chance. So, yeah. um, so, so yeah, so that's basically what a molar pregnancy is. And, um, mine did progress into, um, gestational trophoblastic disease, which is kind of the persistent or the cancerous form of it. Um, so, I mean, basically like I 
did end up getting that DNC after we found out about the miss miscarriage. And that went fair. I mean, that went fairly well. I had had that hysteroscopy with the like DNC. So I kind of knew what to expect. Um, and I even had asked the OB, it wasn't my normal OB at the time, but she had not been suspicious of a molar pregnancy when I went in. And I don't know if she just wasn't thinking about it, but, um, basically my pathology report did come back later that week that they were suspicious for it. So I had to start getting my ACG monitored once a week. Um, so basically after you've had a molar pregnancy and they confirm it, it's basically a tumor that secretes ACG. So that's the way they can track it. So it's super important to get your ACG measured once a week after you have that initial DNC. So my numbers did go from 200,000 down to 9,000 after a week after the DNC, which, um, I mean, that's significant, but it's more after that, that you have to track. So, so after the DNC went well, but then like three days later, I did start kind of having that really ugly bleeding I had had initially, it started happening again. So I just, in my gut, I just like felt like something was wrong. Um, I know a lot of people say that they can have bleeding for a long time after a DNC, but I just, in general, I don't, I know my body and I usually don't bleed unless there's something wrong. So even though I knew it could be normal, um, I kind of told them that I wanted a follow-up scan to see if there was any like retained tissue because I had had that before too. So I did go in and they did actually see like some retained tissue and they're like, you're right. This just doesn't look quite right. Um, we might have to do another DNC, which is just like, like goodness, like another surgery to, um, like, and this was only like 10 days after, um, the initial one, we also were tracking my ACG levels and they were kind of hovering around like 7,000, 8,000. So they weren't really going down. They're like, okay, let's kind of see what things look like um, over the weekend. And then Monday we'll plan on doing another DNC to get rid of this retained tissue since it is there. And since you're still having bleeding, um, and my regular OB was going to do the surgery, which made me feel better too. So, um, so I was just like, all right, just have to make it to Monday. And hopefully after that, this will kind of be over. I just felt like at this point I had been bleeding for an entire month and I was just tired of it because it was just a constant reminder of what I was going through. And it was, it was just getting, I was just tired of it too. It was just, I just wanted to feel normal again. Um, so everything like the bleeding never got like terrible, but of course they were like, if the bleeding gets really heavy, if you're like soaking a pad in more than an hour, make sure that you go to the ER and like, don't wait to be seen if that starts happening. So it was manageable up until that point. So I was like, okay, I just gotta make it to Monday. And then of course, Sunday, we're getting ready for bed. I'm getting ready for surgery the next morning. And all of a sudden at like 1130 PM, I start just, I just was gushing blood all of a sudden. I cannot even explain it. Just, it just started happening. And I had, it was similar to my first miscarriage, but like somehow worse. Um, so all of a sudden, like I was soaking through a pad and probably under an hour and, and I'm sorry, this is going to be like super graphic, but, um, I was also passing these, like the I've, I've read about it, but I was actually passing those like hand size clots that like you read about are the things you should worry about. If you need to go to the ER for a miscarriage, um, that was happening. And while I didn't have any pain, I mean, that was just traumatic in itself to feel that actually like passing through my cervix and into the toilet was 
it was horrific. And I kind of was like, okay, I I'm tough. Like I can wait this out. Maybe this will stop, um, in an hour or so. So that, cause I just, like I said, I didn't want an emergency surgery. I wanted my OB to do it because I was scared of this too. I knew that I had this molar tissue and I wanted it to be done by a doctor I trusted. Um, so, I mean, by the time like four o'clock rolled around and it hasn't stopped, I realized that we had to go to the ER. So, um, we went to my, the ER that was attached to like my, um, OB's kind of office. It's kind of a big hospital complex. And I had even like collected all the clots I had passed. This is, I don't, I mean, I don't know why I did this, but I think I like wanted to show them the magnitude of what was happening. And I actually like put all of the tissue I had passed like in a Tupperware container so that I could show them when I got there, how serious it was. Cause I know a lot of times they won't take vaginal bleeding very seriously. Um, so of course I got there around like five 30 in the morning. There's hardly anyone there, but, um, basically they told me that I'd wait in the waiting room. My husband actually had to wait outside in his truck because of COVID, which was horrible. And they basically triaged me and I guess my blood pressure was normal. So they're like, okay, like we know that you're having like a lot of bleeding, but we have some other people to see. So why don't you wait in the waiting room and we'll call you when an exam room's ready. So, I mean, at this point, I like, I know that they can't see it, but I knew that I was still just constantly bleeding. I could feel it. Um, And I think that's one of the things that about like, someone coming in for a miscarriage, um, or vaginal bleeding like that is you can't always see it happening. So I feel like they almost feel like it, it's not as serious as you, as it really is. So I did sit in a chair for almost an hour and I had to get up to go to the bathroom because I just could feel all of the bleeding it was happening. I just had to go like clean myself up. Um, so the bathroom of course is like all the way down the hallway and no one is there and I'm walking there And all of a sudden I start to feel very dizzy and I made it to the bathroom and my vision just started going out. And I realized that I was going to pass out and that no one was going to know I was in there. So I actually managed to like call my husband and tell him that I was about to pass out in the bathroom from all of this bleeding that I was having and that no one knew I was there. So, um, So of course, as soon as he, as I made that phone call, like I did make out in the hallway, but I did faint actually right there in the ER in that empty hallway. And as soon as I came to like, of course, then everyone's rushing to like take care of me. And they were like, oh, we were just about to come get you. But, um, I mean, to me, it's still just like, I think it's unacceptable that I was made to wait that long. And later I found out that I did lose like, um, my, hematocrit, which is like your red blood cell count did drop like 10%, um, during this bleeding episode. So I just, I know they couldn't see it happening, but I know they didn't take me seriously and it shouldn't have taken me fainting in the hallway for, um, me to have been seen like by a doctor for that. So, um, I totally agree. And I had the same experience and like, I'm just sitting here relating to everything. Um, because I, had a very similar experience and felt like they did not take it seriously whatsoever. Yeah. And I think a lot of women, unfortunately experience that. And I mean, something's got to change there because like, even though they can't see it, it's, it's serious and it needs to be addressed. Um, 
So, I mean, once I, once they took me back and once I got like an IV in, cause my blood pressure tanked from all that blood loss, I did feel a lot better. And, um, my OB did bump my surgery up. So I was able to get my surgery done by my OB and they took care of me and everything. But that whole ER experience was just, it was so horrific. Um, and I mean, basically with molar tissue, it's very vascular because it is like a tumor. So I think that's why I was having so much bleeding. Um, and that's a lot of times that they think you have a molar pregnancy, you actually shouldn't take like site attack for it because it probably won't get rid of the tissue. It'll probably just make you bleed a lot. Um, so I did finally, after this other surgery, I did finally stop bleeding. Um, they must've gotten rid of most of the tissue and I recovered pretty well from that surgery. So I kind of figured, okay, we got that second surgery done. All the molar tissue is probably done, gone. Um, my ECG at the time of surgery was around 8,000. So I still had a while to go, but I was pretty convinced after that point, it would just start to go down. Um, when you're diagnosed with that, I think like most of us research and we find that sometimes it can become cancerous and then you might need chemotherapy, but I never considered it because I felt like I had been through enough at that point. Um, so, I mean, unfortunately for me, um, I got my ECG back the next week and actually found out it had gone up to 11,000. And then I got it done a few days later and it had gone up to 20,000. Um, so I, and I knew what this meant and it basically meant that my um, molar pregnancy had kind of become that gestational trophoblastic disease, this, the cancerous form of it. Um, so basically my OB was like, we need to refer you to an oncologist. So, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I have never had any health issues prior to all of this miscarriage stuff. And um, I mean, basically I got referred to an oncologist the next day. So it was pretty surreal suddenly becoming an oncology patient. Um, and I think all of this, what's so hard about a molar pregnancy in general is it's hard to almost process the loss itself because all of a sudden you have to become worried about your own health and you have to worry that you're going to need chemotherapy treatment. And even just watching your ECG numbers week to week, I know is very stressful for a lot of women. Um, so, I mean, I had to get chest x-rays done. Um, I met with an oncologist. We discussed starting methotrexate treatment, which is typically what is used. It is used for ectopic pregnancies, which is where people might know that word from, but it also is the first line of treatment for molar pregnancies to try to stop the spread of that kind of aggressive placental tissue. Um, so basically we discussed like, Hey, methotrexate will probably do the trick. Um, you'll do once a week injections and we'll monitor HCG levels and this should go away. Um, so I did start with that. And, um, again, just surreal being treated like in a chemotherapy ward with people that are battling other forms of cancer, having to kind of go into that waiting room the first time is very surreal. Um, so I started with methotrexate injections. They did at the, and at the time I started, my ACG was around 36,000, which, um, is actually a pretty high number for getting started with this. A lot of women will end up like plateauing in the low hundreds or something like that and need treatment towards the end. But my numbers were really high to begin with. So that was scary. Um, 
so we did methotrexate for a little while and you want at least like a 10% drop in your HCG each week. But obviously I was hoping for more than that because my numbers were so high. So we did that for a little while and I fortunately didn't have a lot of side effects on it. Some people get very bad mouth ulcers. Um, they can get nauseous. I did feel tired all the time, but that was about it. Um, unfortunately I ended up plateauing on the methotrexate injections. I had gotten down to about like 22,000 and then it started to go up again. And, um, and that in itself was just like, I just was like, is this ever going to end? I just, it, it was just one bad news after one after the other, we just kept getting hit and again and again. Um, so I switched to a chemotherapy called actinomycin. Um, that is another like single agent used for this a lot. And it's given IV every two weeks. Basically we tried that one time and my numbers went up again. So we basically decided, okay, this is not how this is supposed to go. And we need to figure out another game plan. Um, so basically my oncologist did consult with Dana, Dana Farber, which is the up in Boston. They're like the molar pregnancy experts in the country. Um, and basically what we ended up doing is doing an ultrasound to look for tumor regrowth. And they actually did find a three centimeter tumor that regrew in my uterus. So I got to have another, another DNC. Um, so for this molar pregnancy, I had three surgeries total. Um, I'm very glad that we did it because it was actually very successful. Um, I did lose a lot of blood during the surgery. So all the blood I had regenerated from the first ER visit, all of a sudden I lost it again. So that was something that I had to deal with, but I was really sore after that surgery because the molar tissue is so hard to work with that they had me out for almost an hour. Whereas a DNC is usually like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, so, but luckily it brought my ACG levels down from like, I think 24,000 down to 2,800, which I couldn't believe when they told me that. So I'm super fortunate that we decided to go that route. Um, also, Arden, I'm keeping a look on the clock and I know you have to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you're totally fine. Um, do you want me to continue going? Um, I, I, I mean, I can finish up pretty quick. We're almost... Okay. Like yeah. You end. go right ahead. I can always okay. email the girl next and don't worry about it at all. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I want to be conscientious of your time. Like I said, this is just, it's so much stuff. Um, no, I, of course. And it's like, it's not any fault of yours that your story is long, you know, so I totally <laughs> it is <get> long. It. <laughs> um, so I'm really glad we did that third DNC. There's like a lot of controversy about doing DNCs for molar pregnancies, but it made a humongous difference because now instead of having to work with an ECG level of like 24,000, I was down to 2,800 and actually it went down the next week to 1,300. So I was thrilled. Like this was the first time finally, by this point we're in May now. And I had my first DNC for the molar pregnancy in March. So this was like two months in that finally, like I was seeing some progress and maybe a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I mean, unfortunately for me, even though this was super successful since, um, the other chemotherapy agents, actinomycin and methotrexate had proven to not work for me. Basically my next step was I had to start, um, like I hate to call it real chemotherapy, but like intensive chemotherapy called Emico, which is basically 
for whatever reason, they developed this protocol that instead of like just one chemotherapy agent, they found that um, they found that the these five drugs together are what are needed for um, some of these molar pregnancies that are considered high risk. So, um, so I started that in early May and I mean, it's, it's an intensive protocol. I mean, basically one week I'm in the hospital for actually like 24 hours receiving IV chemotherapy. And one of them is a 12 hour infusion. So I have to like stay the night and everything. And then the next week is another infusion of two different chemotherapy agents. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff. Um, I, I still sometimes wake up and can't believe that I'm going through this kind of treatment, but, um, I will say, even though it's been really scary having to go through intensive chemotherapy for this, um, I will give my body major props. Um, it's been a champ. Um, I obviously have been like really tired, but I really haven't had any of the, like, I was, I assumed I was like going to waste away that I was going to be super weak and like bedridden on this stuff. And fortunately I've still been able to like somewhat function as a normal human being, which I mean, is what you have to do sometimes when you are faced with these challenges I mean, you still have to retain some sort of normalcy and continue on with your life. Um, so basically while I've been on Emico. Oh, I also um, have to get Lupron injections while I'm on this chemotherapy because of course um, it's in a very aggressive cancer. So you can't like do egg retrieval or anything beforehand. And obviously with my condition, you can't force my body into egg retrieval when it still thinks it's pregnant. Um, but one of the drugs cyclophosphamide actually causes infertility, which of course is like um, exactly what I need after dealing with all of this, um, the miscarriage and just like I, at the end of this, I want to be a mom at some point. So to deal with like threats of infertility from chemotherapy treatment has been really scary for me. Um, and that's something we still don't know how it's affected me and we'll find out in the future, but I've been on Lupron basically to force me into menopause to help prevent my ovaries from being hit too hard. Um, so, I mean, I, basically my drops have been really good. I'm actually down to this last, this past week, I was down to an HCG of six, which is like two points wow. away from what you need to be negative. Um, so it has worked really, really well. I will give it that. Um, unfortunately I did, I haven't lost all of it yet, but, um, something that was really hard for me last week was I did start to lose my hair on this chemotherapy protocol, which, which happens because it's, it's intense chemotherapy. And of course it's something I think every cancer patient hopes doesn't happen to them. Um, but that was an experience in itself as realizing that this stuff is so heavy duty that it's like, it's causing my hair to die. It's causing the cells in my body to die too. And that has been just something that has been really hard for me to come to terms with. So I did end up saying goodbye to actually a lot of my hair this past weekend. Um, I haven't shaved my head yet. I hope I don't have to, but I'm rocking, rocking a pixie cut right now. Um, I usually have hair down to my shoulders. So um, that was kind of almost another loss I had to go through on top of everything with this. Um, and so, but I mean, other than that, I have to say I get super emotional sometimes and sometimes I'm really tired and foggy. But for the most part, I've been able to 
continue to actually sometimes exercise and like maintain a sense of normalcy. And I'm, I, I'm really proud of my body for being able to do that while facing this really intensive treatment. Um, so, I mean, honestly, that is kind of in a nutshell where I'm at right now. Um, I am hopefully going to be done chemotherapy treatment by the end of this month. I need an ACG basically of like, I think below five, and then they'll do, um, two, they usually do two rounds after that. But if I hit negative this round, then I will be done June 28th, which is hopefully going to come very soon. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, you mentioned a few times how you're proud of your body in some aspects, of course, it's a, a horrible thing to even have to try and find that pride, but you have handled it like a champ and you've seen the strength that you have both inside and out. And that is a great thing. I just wish that you never had to see that. But, um, <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. It, it is, to. Yes, but yeah, I yeah. Think- I think that's something a lot of us might find. And I know, um, I think sometimes I feel like almost that we compare like our losses, our experiences to each other's. And I know when people see mine, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what you're going through. Like you must be so strong and stuff like that. And I just try, I really try to remind everyone that like, wherever you're at your journey and whatever struggles you have at this time, I mean, those are all very valid and we shouldn't compare ourselves to each other. And um, we all are strong for the things that we have to go through. And I, we think of some of these things and you might look at someone else and be like, man, I don't think I could ever do that. But you would surprise yourself if you were in that situation, like you would find the strength to keep on going. And I, um, that's something that I've learned a lot about myself. And I truly think that, um, I mean, women are awesome and women, women are resilient. And I truly think that we are stronger than we ever can imagine when we have to go through stuff like this. Yeah. Well, I think that's well said. And, and I hope that, you know, as you recover and as you do think about trying to conceive again, whatever that looks like for you, please come back and give us an update. Um, you know, come back whenever you're pregnant again, come back and share where you're at. We love an update episode and that's what we're going to start doing. So, um, your story is yeah, over. And so we want to hear from you again and we want to hear the rest of your story. Cause this is only the beginning. Um, even though, you know, that's, it's a long beginning, but you know, I hope that this <laughs> is all fair. that your story contains in the lost department.